Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's Sermon Podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we continue to learn from God's Word in the first epistle of Paul to the church in Corinth. We pray that God's Word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, this week is kind of an application light week, meaning there's not a lot of applications. So if you're one of those people that like, likes to leave with application, just prepare your heart. There's not going to be much today, okay? This is a section of scripture that is a really, really, really big and deep and immense and wonderful set of scripture that talks about the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection as well. Ultimately, building up to the application in chapter 15, but that's in verse 58, which we are not going to be at today. But he says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so all of the things that we're talking about and working through with the resurrection, they're building to the idea that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, that God is doing something. But as we dig in today, as we start looking at today, I have to kind of, we have to kind of work through a little bit of bad theology that maybe some of us maybe have understood or, or perpetuated as we move forward before we even get into this text. So a lot of people, when you think of the end of your life, you think of that this, this body is, is bad and sinful and broken and a mess and it's, and it's material and it's horrible. And when you die, you get your soul separates your body and goes to heaven with God and you leave the bad behind. And, and many of you are like, well, yeah, that's what Scripture teaches. Actually, that's Plato's definition of the afterlife. The Greco-Roman world taught very much in this time in Corinth that heaven was that our bodies were, that every single thing that was material was bad. Some people took it to an extreme level where they're like, even the enjoyment of food or those things are bad. And so, but specifically that everything is bad in the material and this spiritual or immaterial is, is inherently good. And that the, what that happens is when we die, we're freed from this prison, as, as Plato would call it, of the flesh. And we're put in heaven in this kind of harp playing clouds, white robe kind of picture of heaven and resurrection. That is what most of the believers in Corinth were wrestling with. This was a very predominant teaching in the Greco-Roman world. The thought and the idea behind resurrection, a physical body of resurrection, was a difficulty for most of them to understand because a lot of people said that that didn't happen. So we have to understand that we probably have been influenced some by philosophy and time and in our, in our kind of our Western culture of Christianity. We have to recognize that although heaven is a reality and scriptures talk about, which we'll talk about here in a second, us going away, us escaping here and going away to some place is not what the scriptures teach. That's a part of it, but that's not the complete picture. The second thing we have to understand is one pastor broke it up this way, but he said there's two predominant ways that heaven is spoken about in Scripture. And then there's one that many of us perpetuate that is nowhere to be found in Scripture. The first one of heaven, when we see the word heaven in Scripture, Old Testament or New, it's speaking about the sky and the universe and the stars above. You see this in Genesis 1, and God created the heavens and the earth. It's speaking of the skies, kind of the, the universe and everything that's around us. That's a predominant use in Scripture where, where we see that over and over and over again. Revelation 21 picks up that same idea. A new heavens and earth is spoken about. And so we see that. The second use and the more predominant use in Scripture is kind of the heaven. And this is considered God's dwelling place. 
If you look at all the visions that you see in Scripture when they speak of heaven, when, when you look at whether it's John in Revelation or anywhere else where someone goes in this spot, you always see this depiction of God on a throne. Almost always in every vision it puts God on a throne because in the heaven, that is God's dwelling place where he is on the throne. Nothing else is on the throne. No Satan, no, no worldly things, no self, nothing. Everything is out of the way. In the heavens, it's in God's order. It's in place. It's his dwelling place. He has done everything, and it's the invisible world, God's reign. No one else or anything else will ever be on the throne. We also see in this word of heaven, we see the adverb of it used in heavenly. We see that more often in Scripture than the noun itself. We see heavenly over and over and over again. And heavenly, again, is under God's dwelling reign. And so when the Apostle Paul says heavenly in chapter 15 here, he says we will have our heavenly bodies. What he's saying is a body that is fully under the reign authority of God. The way that heaven isn't used in Scripture is this idea that we are going to go and live forever with God in this heaven that's in a distant place from here away. Actually, that's not said anywhere in Scripture. We hear about the heaven. We hear about God being in heaven. We hear about us even seeing that for a moment. And there's lots of stuff that I don't have time to unpack completely, but for the sake of today, this idea of heaven, the way that it's predominantly used in us, is, is more like an eternal life thing. We, we see eternal life. We, we get stuck on where it is. Now, if we don't pay attention to the fact that there is a bodily resurrection, which is what this text is talking about today, if we don't, if we don't wrestle with the idea that our escapism mentality of we're just going to go somewhere else, then it, it changes what the gospel really is to mean for us. And so we have to recognize that ultimately this isn't going to be just us escaping somewhere else. God is bringing a new heaven and a new earth here. Popular belief that that's basically two steps. There's life here and life after death. The end is the end, and it's somewhere else. And that's predominantly what we see many people perpetuating and preaching and speaking. Scriptures teach that it's a three-part. There's life, and there's life after death, and then there's the resurrection that comes. As N.T. Wright calls it, the life after the life after death. Right? This idea that there's a, re a bodily resurrection. We see it over and over and over in Scripture. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So Jesus will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead, they're already dead. They will be rising with Christ when on his second coming back. The resurrection is all over Scripture, not just in the Pauline letters. All over Scripture, Jesus speaks about it. In fact, we see kind of allusions to it all over, talking about what it'll look like. And never, just so you saw, never does it say it's a heaven far away. Isaiah 65.1 calls it the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, that's a renewed heavens and renewed earth. 1 Peter 5.10, Peter says he calls it a time for God to restore you. Then Matthew, Jesus says himself in 19, he calls it the renewal of all things. It doesn't say heaven. He says this is the renewal of all things. And speaking in the resurrection, speaking of this time, Ephesians 2, 7, Paul called it the age to come, or in 2 Timothy 4, 18, the heavenly kingdom. In John 3, 16, we see just it being called eternal life. This idea of us escaping here and going somewhere else is not what the Scripture teaches. And it's important for us to understand that because there are implications if that's true. And that's what the entirety of this long, 58, dense, thick chapter is about. And like I said, today we're going to just kind of dig into some of what that means with a little bit of application, and then we'll hopefully have some great application in a couple weeks when we end chapter 15. So resurrection, first off, I have to say it this way, 
in their understanding, in the way about almost 200 years past this time of this writing and, and really before this, whenever the word resurrection was stated, there was no misunderstanding. If you look at Greek literature or you look at even, even Jewish literature outside of the scripture, everyone talked about resurrection the same way. It was always a physical body that is dead that is raised to life. There's no ethereal, spiritual kind of thing that's happening when they say the resurrection. There was no confusion about that in this day when resurrections were, when it said. It meant a physical body. And that is very important for us to understand because if we lose sight of that, we forget that resurrection is a physical body. It has implications, like I was saying. What is the first thing that Jesus does in the upper room with the disciples? Can I have something to eat? Right? A, a spiritual, ethereal thing doesn't need food. So he was hungry. You need to see it as a bodily thing. Okay, with that, last week we talked about the very first part of, of 15, which is important for us to recognize. We said that there's a past effect of the gospel, a present effect of the gospel, and a future effect of the gospel. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. We said there are three things that we forget in it. We forget who we were apart from the gospel, that we were dead and not just sick. We forget who we are becoming, that God is still at work in us, and that he's going to complete what he began. And we take our eyes off of Jesus and the fact that he's going to do something in completion in the resurrection. And that was where we were last week. This week, we're in verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 15, verse 12, with that big, huge backdrop. We're going to jump in here. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip your hands up. The ushers will have one for you as well. Chapter 15, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misinterpreting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. So this section here is right here before we go on a little bit further. This is kind of a section that, that's coming back after the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, had talked about all the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. We went through that last week. It was Cephas and James and all the apostles and, and even to the apostles, um, to Paul himself. And he was saying, look, this is Jesus. We saw him. 500 people saw him walking. We knew he was dead, fully dead and fully alive, not some Monty Python iteration in the middle, right? He was, he was fully dead and fully alive. And we see that happen there. And so now he's going on and saying, well, now here is the reality. Here's what comes out. He's, he's adding some depth to this section. He says, here's what happens if we say that there is no bodily resurrection. And he runs through this list of things that happen. In verse 13, he says, well, then Christ hasn't been raised either. If, I, if there is no resurrection of the body, then Christ hasn't been raised. Then he was, he was not fully dead or he was, he was never, ever, ever raised in that way. And he's saying, look, if that's the truth, if you're saying that there is no resurrection for you or I, then we have to say that Christ didn't raise from the dead either because he's the one that we're basing all of this on. The second thing it says is he says in verse 14, he says, our preaching is in vain or our pre preaching is pointless or worthless. It has no value. It's pointless. 
saying, look, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, if the resurrection did not happen, then us even talking about it's really kind of foolish and simple and pointless. It, may, it serves no purpose. Which then if our preachings is in vain, then your faith is in vain. The second part of verse 14. We preach that there is a faith that can be justified in Christ, by Christ, but what he's done, by work of what he's done, we can be standing in, in righteousness. That is all a fallacy, and that can't go if the resurrection is in place. It's not just the death and burial of Jesus Christ. It's the death, burial, and resurrection. And if that preaching was in vain or was pointless, then obviously your faith is pointless. The faith that you have, the, the reason you're walking around and living this life, it just is pointless. He goes on and says in verse 15, we are found to be misinterpreting God. Literally, we are false witnesses, is what this says. If you are in this way, if this is the, the way it's said, then we're false witnesses. Now, something, a little context that's important for us to understand. We aren't understanding exactly how big of a deal it was to be a false witness, but it goes against the Ten Commandments. Okay, and this is, we see that in Exodus 20, 16 and Deuteronomy 5, 20, if you want to write those down. One of which was cited by Christ himself. We saw Christ himself speak it in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Mark 10, 19, Matthew 19, 18, and Luke 18, 20. According to Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will not go free. Speaking of a false witness of God is a really, really big deal. It's not some small thing where it's like, oh, that's, that's just your idea. No, it's punishable. It is an issue. It is a big, big deal. And so he's saying, look, this is who we are. If this is the resurrection it didn't actually happen, then we're misrepresenting God then we are completely speaking poorly about God, and we are, we are due the punishment that is spoken of in Proverbs 19.5. Verse 17 says, you are still in your sins. If we don't have resurrection, hear me on this. Jesus dies for our sins in the cross. Perfect sacrifice for our sins. The resurrection is what brings us to life. It's what, how we walk in life. If Jesus doesn't resurrect, he was a really amazing person that did incredible things and then died. And it means that then you and I aren't clothed in his righteousness, and we therefore no longer can stand in the presence of God because we are in our sins. The wrath of God that is due the punishment to all who have sinned against him, we are still sitting in that if the resurrection doesn't happen. Verse 18, he says, those who have fallen asleep. This is a euphemism for death. We'll talk about that in a second. In Christ have perished. He's saying all those good people, all the saints in, in Hebrews chapter 11, all those people by faith and all those things they did, they've literally just perished. All your family members that, that love the Lord, that died, well, they just perished. It's just, it's just this bleak out when you live and you die and it's over. They've perished if Jesus hasn't resurrected. And then in verse 19, he says, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, the reason why he's saying this is pitied or to be looked at as foolish is because of the life that they were living. At this point, when he's writing this, it's already been tough for them. The apostles were starting to experience a lot of hostility towards those that were following the way, the way of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, look, why, why would we live this way? Why would we take this punishment? Why would we even be martyred for the sake of Christ if the resurrection didn't happen? We should be pitied. We're foolish. We put all our hope in something that doesn't matter, all our hope in something that isn't true. All of these things, this list right here, all of these things are not true because of the big but in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So this whole list here, 
we can say this and say, Christ has been raised from the dead, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. I know that my preaching is not in vain, and not just mine. Preaching isn't just up here. Preaching is sharing the gospel at any point in your workplace, everywhere else. It's not in vain. It's not, it's not pointless because it has value and validity because the resurrection is in place, which in turn means the faith that comes from that preaching and that life change is not in vain. It means all of these things now are true, You're, that we're not misrepresenting God, but the people that believe that the resurrection is not true are misrepresenting God, and they're due the punishment for breaking the law. And the best one is verse 17. It means that you are no longer in your sins. We can stand holy and righteous before God, recognizing because of the resurrection and those who are in Christ, we are no longer in our sins. We are no longer looked at or held by our sins. We are freed we are clothed in righteousness. We are a new creation in Christ. In verse 18, those who have fallen asleep, they did not perish. They have not perished. They are with God today in the heavens awaiting for their resurrected bodies to be reunited to their souls when Jesus comes again. They have not perished. And then verse 19, there's no reason to pity us because the, the pain, the tribulations, the trials, everything that we experience is all for, for good. It's not for nothing anymore. There's no reason to pity us because we do this because ultimately we are serving a God who is alive and active and resurrected, which means we too will be resurrected. He goes on in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This word man here is where we get our word anthropology. So it's better to say by as a human. So it's in a whole sense there. Resurrection of the dead. For as, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So he's saying, look, he talks about falling asleep in here again. He says, look, the falling asleep is going to happen. We see over and over again in, in the scripture, talking about falling asleep, that it's a euphemism for death. When Jesus walks in and, and someone's dead, they're like, no, nah, she's not dead. She's just falling asleep. Well, no, she was fully dead. She's falling asleep. This has come to be, be used in the New Testament later on as a kind of a, a statement that believed in the hope of resurrection. We see that in Ephesians 5, 14, where it's a different Greek verb is used for the same euphemism and where it is explicitly tied to the resurrection hope. Basically recognizing that when we say falling asleep, when you see it in Scripture, it's people that believe that there is death, but there's hope in resurrection. That's what this means. And he goes, hey, look, death came through Adam. Life comes through a human. In Adam all die, and in Messiah, Christ, all have life. We see the first Adam, second Adam principle. In the scriptures, we see if you go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve, and they live in perfect harmony, something that none of us have ever experienced, something that none of us can fathom what it's like to live in that kind of perfect harmony. Some of you have some great marriages. Nothing like that, I promise. And they live in the spot, and, and he's saying, look, through Adam, all of us have been born through Adam and Eve, which means everyone who is born of Adam and Eve is born of sin because of Adam and Eve's sinfulness. So we've come out of their sinfulness. So out of one human came death, Adam. You know, if you look at the statistics on death, everyone's died. It's like it's 100%, I guess, except for Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus, okay? So we'll leave them out of it. But the rest of us are going to die. And he's saying through Adam this has happened. Through Adam, we see this, and just like, and this is why it's so important for us to see the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, as fully human, resurrects, and because of that, now we can all live. Because Christ, as fully human, represents the entire human race in bearing its sins, he is able to apply the benefits of his death and resurrection to all 
who submit to them. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 talks about that. You can go read Psalm 8 or again down here in verse 26 next week. In this section, that it's important for us to understand the all. He says, by one human, all have sinned, all die. That is literally all people. Every single person dies. But the all, the second one, in talking about Christ, he, he kind of sets it up where he says, he makes it really clear that it's for those who belong to him. It's all of those who belong to Christ will be resurrected in new life. It's not just a blanket statement that everyone's going to be. And he uses this first fruits metaphor. Now, I had this idea that I wanted to be a farmer. Then I realized how much work it was, and I didn't know how I was no good at it. But this idea of first fruits is something that I had to study a little bit on because I'm not familiar with it. But first fruits in the Old Testament, just so you guys know, when they speak of the first fruits, it was always, it was always what denotes the idea of the first portion of the crop or the flock that was due to give to God. It was the first fruits. It was always meant to be God's. It was given to him. The first fruits of everything. This is why you hear even in your practice of, of offerings, right? Like give the first fruits of God. Show them that your money is first in this. That's why they're saying that. That's what the practice was. In farming, what it always meant, what it always meant was the first fruits were the beginning of a harvest that was coming. And so when he says here, it's just brilliant what God does. When God, when God says here that Jesus is the first fruits, it's saying like, look, he's a part of a harvest that more is to come. There is something that follows after it. And if Jesus Christ is resurrected into bodily form, then we, being in Christ, have to be resurrected into bodily form as well. And so he's saying, look, this is coming. Jesus is the first fruits in order, because God is a God of order. We've been talking about that in 1 Corinthians. It says, in order, but to each in his own order. So Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So he's the first of a harvest that's coming, of billions of Christians that will know him. He's the first of that harvest that's coming. When we think about this resurrection and what this means, I'll confess to you guys, okay? I, I don't know if I necessarily fully grasp the idea of it, but when I look at scriptures and you see this picture of the throne room of God and the seraphim and all the people worshiping, and we're going to sing the song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, I'll admit, at times I found myself having to talk myself into the idea of just standing in the throne room of God and worshiping him all day. I, I'll admit that. I'll be like, man, I, I mean, I, I know I'll be amazed at being in his presence. I know there's probably not even words for what I'd experience in that. But I've had to like, yeah, it'd be cool if I had to do that all day, every day, the rest of eternity. I think I'm okay with that. That sounds good. But that's not the picture of the resurrected world. That's the picture of the heavens, the throne room where God is right now. And again, please hear me on this. I'm a broken person. God's at work. I want to be with him. I want to worship him. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's a little hard to think about that. The scriptures give us a picture of what our resurrected life will look like. I just had ignored it apparently over the years. So Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, speaking of this, God speaks. For behold, I create what? New heavens and a new earth. This new, again, we have to understand new can be translated new like the way we use it and can also be renewed. And that's the way that this word is used here. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. I create a city and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. This is poetry again. There's not, they're not teaching that there's death in the new life. He's just saying that this is not, none of that stuff's going to happen. He's giving it a parallel. They shall, and then this is the part that I, I just totally seem to miss apparently. 
they shall build houses and inhabit them. We're actually going to be building stuff in the new heavens. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time picturing myself with a harp and a white robe up in the heavens building something. Like, this sounds like down here, like I'm building a house, which I get excited about, right? It says, build things. They will build, they, um, and then he goes on and says, they build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards. And some of you people are like, oh, man, farming? That's okay. He says right after that, and eat their fruit. So the eating part's fun, right? So we're going to be planting and working in vineyards. I don't know if there's going to be weeds or not, but I, I, I mean, it's going to be perfect. If there are, they're not going to hurt us. Or I have no idea what this looks like. It's all conjecture. But he's giving us this picture, this beautiful picture. God's giving us this in Isaiah. He says, they shall plant vineyards and they eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. This is saying there shall be no injustice is what he's talking about here. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. We, we're going to enjoy working with our hands. Some of you are not enjoying getting up at 7 a.m. to go to work tomorrow. We're going to enjoy working with our hands. They shall not labor in vain. Look, our, our labor will not be pointless. Or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of, their, of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. Before I even say anything, God is going to answer. Guys, this is a beautiful picture. It says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. My kids and I watch a lot of the hunting stuff on Discovery Channel. This, this would mess them up, I think. But either way, it's okay. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. That'll be fun to see. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy. In all my holy mountain, says the Lord. In Revelations 21, John, as he's exiled in Patmos, he picks up on the same vision as he's looking into the future kingdom. In Revelations 21, 1 through 5, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Again, renewed is the word that's used there. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, which is a metaphor for violence, was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is coming down. This is a picture of coming to earth. God is coming to earth, and he says he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe, picking up on Isaiah, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Guys, the scriptures teach Yes, there is, this, there is this heaven happening, and there's this time of waiting that's in place. So you have to look at a lot of other revelations to see it. But in the kingdom of God, in the resurrected kingdom of God, it's a new heavens, a renewed heavens, and a renewed earth. And, and he's with us. It goes down further in, in Revelation. It talks about how the gates are never closed. We can get into the throne room anytime we want to. We're walking. be like, hey, David, what's up? I need to explain this real quick. We can have conversations and eat with Jesus face to face. And all of it will bring glory to God. All of it will be full of worship. Guys, when I think about that, I'll admit, in my own selfishness, that changes a little bit of my view of the resurrection. God is deserving of me being on my face before him for an eternity, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is so worthy of that. But he says, no, 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 I'm doing something. And this is what he's doing. One Adam, sin for all people. One Christ, Messiah, renewed for all people. And what does he do? He brings us back to the garden. 
He renews a renewed earth and a renewed heaven. Everything's new. And in this newness now, we can live where we actually like each other and we don't have to pretend or we don't get in fights where we are enjoying each other's company. I don't even know if, like, if you get cut, if it gets healed. I have no idea. Like, what, what happens? Do you get blisters working those, those vineyards? All conjecture. What about technology? You guys, we could geek out about this all day long, but the point is everything's perfect. We can't imagine it. We are incapable of viewing it because there is no way that you and I can interact with each other in a perfect way until we are resurrected into our imperishable bodies. Guys, this is what resurrection means. This is a profound and beautiful picture of resurrection. If we do away with this, we miss entirely what God's doing. Okay, for those of you that wanted some application, I'm going to spend a couple minutes on it. So what do we do with this? how How do we understand this, right? Like, okay, so... If you look at the scriptures as a whole, if you look at the First Corinthians book as a whole, chapters 5 through 10 kind of talk about the, the person, the body. You see sexual immorality and all these other things. They talk about this idea of us not giving to those things. And we've said from the beginning, like, this isn't, us just a, this isn't just a list of not doing and doing. This is God trying to show us that we are supposed to live true to who we are in the kingdom of God, in his reign, where he is in reign, where our, in our heavenly imperishable bodies. This is what it looks like. And then you see in chapters 11 through 14, he talks about the, the gathered body. He says, this is the order. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is what it looks like. And then he comes to chapter 15 and says, and we're going to be resurrected. The body is going to be resurrected. I, I'd argue with you that the entire book of Corinthians is building up to this point, that we are to live today like we are part of the kingdom that we are already been, in, been invited and new created into through Christ. We live today in light of that truth. One scholar said this, I'm just going to read it because he was really smart. He said, the fact that God has stood by his created order implies that his order with mankind in its proper place within it is to be totally restored at the last. This message gives meaning and significance to the present life, making it clear that our life on earth is important to God. He has given it its order. It matters that it should conform to the order he has given it. Once we have grasped that, we can understand, too, how this order requires of us both a denial of all that threatens to become disordered and a progress towards a life which goes beyond this order without negating it. Guys, we can live today. We can live today true to the order that God has intended for us in the garden by the Spirit's power. That's the only way we can do it. It's nothing in my own doing. There's this pendulum swing. I want to talk about this for a second because a lot of us can get this idea, oh, okay, there's a new heaven, new earth. That makes you think about this world differently. It makes you think about your body differently, right? Okay, so I could lose a few pounds, okay? You don't need to nod, but I could lose a few pounds, right? But I wonder, like, how many pounds I need to lose so that my resurrected body will be, like, that perfect spot, right? Or what about my cholesterol? Like, do I need to have less bacon, or can I push the envelope a little bit there? And, like, I don't think it works like that, okay? I don't think it works like that. However... All over Scripture, in God's Word, we see the word stewardship. And we see the idea that we are to steward that which is God's. And so, yeah, it would be really easy to pendulum swing and be like, well, be a total hedonistic and be like, you know what? It's all burning up anyway, so enjoy, eat, eat, drink, and be merry. In fact, Paul talks about that later. But it's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't enjoy it. It's not all burning up. There's, there's a renewing that's going to happen. Or we can be ascetic. We can be in this, like the people that are like, oh, man, don't enjoy anything because it's all going to go away. No, God invites us into this grace to live and to enjoy these things, but not to make them idols and not to live with them outside of order and not to do it in a way that isn't true to the kingdom that's coming. Let me, let me give you an example of this because it would be really easy for us to say, well, this world's going away anymore so I can b- buy a bigger truck and not recycle, and I can just kind of have fun with it and love to get real political and like, is climate change real? That's not where I'm going, okay? Hear me on this. But as a steward 
of God's kingdom. In the garden, we are commanded to rule and to govern this world. We're going to do the same there. So how we live today is just living true to who we are. And let, let me take it outside of that political oneness, and I'll just go to marriage. Let's go there for a second. No, that never causes any problems. So I'm married to Jen, 14 years, like, next week, which is awesome. Praise God for that. I can't believe that poor woman has li- lived with me for that long. Either way, this might make, be, make her really happy. Jesus teaches in the resurrection there is no marriage, and none are given to marriage. I know some of you are like, what? No, Okay. Let me, let me see this through. Is he just pushing on those people that are talking to him and chest, testing him, whatever? We can study that another time. My point is this. If I know that in the resurrection, I'm not really going to be married, then it'd be really easy for me to be like, you know what, Jen? I mean, I love you and you're great, but, I mean, this life is a vapor and there's an eternity where we're not going to be married. So I could just start treating her as if we aren't married. And every single one of you would hopefully punch me in the face and tell me I'm being unbiblical. Because the scriptures command me to love her like Christ loves the church. Why would God command that today if there's no marriage in the, in, the, in the resurrection? Because he values the order. He values the way it works. Somehow when we do this, it shows the picture of the, of the, to the world what the church is supposed to look like. So I can say, hey, don't worry about your cholesterol. You get a new resurrected body, it's going to be way better than the body you have. It's going to be imperishable. It's not going to break down like yours is right now. And your vision isn't going to go worse. And all the things that happen to you over time. Or I can say, hey, God has stewarded you. He has given you the opportunity to steward this. Is there a way you can do it, you can live, that would bring honor and glory to him today? Say the same thing about the world. Are you doing the orange bag recycling? You know, you're getting all those, it's really confusing. Are you getting all that stuff in place? Making sure you're doing it right? Yeah, you you should be. Why? why? It's not because we say, well, if the CO2 level reaches this percent, Jesus is going to be like, oh, I was going to renew the earth, but it's just 2% too high. Like, that's not how it works. right? He still is going to renew it but we're, we're commanded to steward it. And I think another argument for this, and, and I'm just going to quote this pastor, John Piper does it really well. He says, I think the best argument for environment concern is love for people, not love for Mother Earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It is his and, his, and he meant it to serve people. He put us here to enjoy it. So if we mess it up, we are hurting people. Those two things, the earth is going to be here forever and God cares about it. And then loving people means you should care about how the environment hurts them. The answer is Matthew 22, 39. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if we make it our goal to push into the creation and, and be like, I got to save this world and do all those things, that, that's, not, that's not the point either. The point is to steward it well. One of the, one of the things I, I've always pushed on people is I love that they always say this idea like, man, when I go out fishing in the mountain and I'm like, I'm out there and I, I'm with God. I don't know why I always go to that voice when I do this first story. Okay, so I'm out there and I'm fishing and I just experience God and I see God in his creation. It's just beautiful. Like look at the mountains or I climb this mountain and I'm out in the middle of nowhere and nowhere that man's hand has touched it and it's just gorgeous. That is true. That is God's creation. But the only thing in scripture that is made in the image of God is us. So we can't push into creation, into the created mountains and ignore man. Man, I hope, I hope that more people in this world would look at the way you and I live our lives true to the order of his kingdom and go, man, I, I, I think I see God in that. I want to live for God in that. That's what this scripture is pushing us. The resurrection is a real, tangible, concrete, bodily resurrection, a renewed earth, not some escapism where I'm just going to go somewhere else and so I can just do whatever I want with this. No, there's a way to steward it and do order in that, that, that brings honor to God. So that when we labor, our labor is not in vain like the end of 15 says. Even Jesus tells us, look, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. Many preachers love to make that about money. Okay, fine, we can go there. But really the point is, is, is work for the kingdom of God, not 
for yourself. This is the push that we have in resurrection. The band's going to come up, and we're going to continue to worship. And so there's a way today, there's an implication today for you and I as children of God, as those that have been invited and, and surrendered and submit our lives into the kingdom of God where he is working in us, that there's going to be a time when we fall asleep, but when we awake, we awake to Jesus and God showing up in his throne room here in a renewed earth where you and I can walk and have conversations, eat a, eat a ham sandwich with Jesus and just talk to him all day long where there's no divisiveness. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe is together and we all understand each other. And we genuinely like to be around each other and we genuinely want to know more about it and we continue to worship and bring glory to God. That's what we're going to. So the push is for us to live today by the Spirit's power that would be true that that person that is a child of God, that's a part of that heavenly kingdom that will be here. Jesus' prayer, God, today, Bring it down here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your reign. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the ability to serve you. God, forgive me in the ways that I have maybe tried to escape too much, not recognize that there's a way I could steward this that would bring glory to you. There's a way I could steward the things that you have around me, whether it's this earth or it's my body or it's the relationships or the finances, whatever it is, God, I can steward it in a way that's true to your kingdom only because of your spirit that lives inside of me. So, Father, I pray for every individual here, whether they are um, just barely walking on this journey with you or they've been walking with you for a long time. God, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on the new heavens and the new earth. We're so excited about that that there's nothing this world could offer today that would take our fix off that. Everything we do today would be in true in light of that, where our bodies are no longer deteriorating. There's no more brokenness. There's no more sin. There's no more tears. God, I pray that we get lost in that as we think about how good that would be. And not lost in a way that we become non-existent here, but lost in a way that it changes every single step and breath and choice we make today. For God, for those that are here today that, that don't know what they believe, they're here today and they're like, man, I'm not really sure I understood this whole resurrection. I just heard all this and now I'm really confused. God, I pray, I pray that you'd push into them. They're not here on accident. You're doing a work in them. You're pursuing them. And I pray that they'd submit their lives to you. They'd ask the questions that need to be asked. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for resurrection. We thank you for being the first fruits of a promised crop. We cannot wait to be a part of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.